This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm so very excited to welcome back Dr. Luke Snooski. How are you, Luke? I'm really good. So excited to be here. Excited to continue the conversation and deepen the conversation. Hopefully we'll go to more nuances and subtleties today. Oh my gosh, that last episode we did together where we talked about your book, Soma Wise, and just about the work that you do. It just went ballistic, that episode. And I've never actually done an episode that had so many comments and people messaging me just saying, oh my God, wow. I know that your book went bestseller on Amazon after that episode, which was also really cool. It made me feel pretty good about that. <laughs> so I'm that just going to take the credit for that. You, you, uh, you absolutely should take the credit. I visited the book page on in Amazon Australia and I saw that bestseller label on my book. I'm like, oh, well, I know what caused that. So I think I, I immediately reached out to you and said, well, thanks, Danny, for the sister (laughs) (laughs) and it's so worthy of because it as I said and and people who have been listening to this podcast and follow the podcast would know that I've just been raving about it and in other episodes since but your book Soma Wise getting out of your head and into your body is just it's like my bible and I did a retreat in Bali recently and I gave everyone a copy of the book I was there and I'm just so passionate about it our grads book club just read the book for book club and yeah I'm just trying to force it down anyone's throat who will listen that's right you're my makeshift publishing company Danny thanks I don't need to hire a PR agency I've just got you thanks you got me you got me what more do you need (laughs) 
<laughs> got this crazy redheaded Australian getting all evangelistic <laughs> about your book. So for those who aren't familiar with Luke, who haven't heard that episode, which we're talking about, Luke was my facilitator in Gabor Mate's Compassionate Inquiry year-long course, which I did. And he's an amazing therapist in his own right and also an author. Yeah, just a very talented, amazingly educated human who's also struggled with his own addictions. And so I think that's why the book is so helpful too, because you're coming from that place where you've been there with addictions and have used this stuff to help you. I guess the premise of the book is all about learning to reconnect or becoming more connected with our own bodies and listening to the signals that our bodies are trying to show us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that was one of the missing ingredients that I didn't really understand. And it wasn't until I learned how to connect to my own body that I did find a pathway out of my own addiction. In my case, it was pornography, as I spoke about in our last podcast interview together. And yeah, you're right. I think that, you know, my intention with the book was to make it relatable because there's entire sections of the book that talk about vulnerability and communication and authenticity. I didn't think that it would be appropriate if I didn't share my story to model what that process actually looks like. It takes guts to share, like to really to air any of our dirty laundry, I guess, so publicly, but particularly around any addiction, because there's always that shame there with that. And did you struggle with that with that book, particularly being porn? Because it's a bit like, you know. There's a lot of social stigma and societal stigma around there. And mm. yeah, for many years, I, I considered myself almost damaged goods, psychologically, at least as a result of my exposure to porn. But it's kind of a segue. I know that today we're going to be diving into this concept of radical self-acceptance. You asked if it was difficult. I think, you know, it took me seven years to write that book in terms of just slowly really telling the story and piecing it together. And it was challenging at times to sort of write some things. But as the process went on and as the healing journey continued, it was actually surprising at how easy it's now to talk about it and how easy it is to share. And I think that's the direct result of practicing radical self-acceptance, because once we do fully accept something, it really is a lot easier to simply say it how it is without that tension, that constriction that comes from the shame and the guilt. Our body will let us know if we're actually not accepting something. I'm sure we'll talk about that today. So to be able to share it and you know, say, yeah, this is who I am. This is where I came from. And this is what I stand for and what I've learned. And I think our body is a nice barometer for it can tell us if there's something that's still left to be explored or if we're actually just speaking our relaxed truth. Mm, it's amazing once you do tune in and you can start to feel that little pang in your body of like, oh, and I'm not being quite honest here. And yeah, <laughs> the body's just giving us these little reminders. I just recently read Dr. Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation. Have you read that? Mm, heard of it. Right. Amazing book. Absolutely brilliant book. But in the, towards the end of that book, she talks about using honesty as part of the recovery process. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because when we're caught in addiction or in, in some kind of shameful spiral with something, we tend to not be honest, whether it's, yes. a, it can be big too. Yeah. I had someone on the podcast recently, a musician, Meg Doherty, she was talking about how she just started with these little lies. She said by the end of it, when she was really in the grips of her addiction, she was lying about everything. Mm -hmm. The tricks that our mind will play on us, the stories that our mind will tell us in order to perpetuate a habit of numbing or a habit of avoidance or a habit of, of soothing. It's just the way the mind works. And I think it takes a special kind of honesty. I love that honesty and acceptance and all these different concepts are really becoming key parts of conversations around addiction and recovery. But I would say the kind of honesty we're looking for is a ruthless honesty, like cutthroat honesty, like a, a, an honesty that is just cuts straight to the very core of what's actually happening. And it's that confrontation with the truth that oftentimes is what liberates us. It's incredibly challenging. Sometimes it's, there's a visceral experience, right? We might literally shake when we express this truth within ourselves, because this deeply embedded energy is coming to the surface and our body like shakes, spasm, triggers, cries, just screams, whatever it may be. I don't know if you've had an experience like that. I've witnessed many and had my own, but that is the truth coming to the surface. And once the body is able to process it and express it and release it, oh, there's just this softening to finally not carry the weight of that lie, of that untruth, that tension, that whatever that is, that wound. It's amazing all the little everyday little fibs that we tell as well. Sometimes honesty can be weaponized, I guess. So I wouldn't like it to be used as a weapon. You know, I'm just being honest, yeah. but <laughs> therefore I'm being an asshole. Not that, but more about honesty, about our own stuff. 
Yeah, I yeah. think authenticity might be a more uh, gentle way of describing it, and maybe a more right. even realistic way of describing this process of honesty, because sometimes uh, it's not black and white and it's gray. And authenticity allows for the existence of the gray, and it allows us to navigate not just what is communicated, but how it's communicated, because that's such an important part of that expression and that communication as well. It's like you said, it's kind of easy in it to use it as an excuse sometimes. Well, I'm just being honest, you're a dick. But if we're leaning on authenticity, we might include other variables in that equation of how to communicate and why we're communicating something. Yeah, absolutely. Because if someone's sort of saying to you, oh, does my ass look fat in this dress or these pants? Maybe it does look a little, but I don't think it's nice. To, yeah, it does. <laughs> Just to, sometimes it's not what's required, but I agree. Authenticity. Yeah. yeah. It's the nuances and the subtleties, how we communicate it, why we communicate it and paying attention, right? So the expression is only one, is step one. Then there's, so here's a part of the equation that we control in terms of honesty, acceptance, compassion, authenticity, whatever we want to call it. The part that we control to the best of our ability is what we say and how we say it. After that, here comes the unknown part of the equation, which is how this other nervous system, full of its own memories, full of its own personality, its own conditioning, how that nervous system responds in that present moment to our communication. And now we have this feedback loop, and that's what creates this relationship. And now we're able to, in relationship with the specific person, we get to determine, well, we learn about this person. I know now that if I communicate in this way, this is how this might impact this person. And that's really good data. So we know whether or not we want to communicate with this specific person in this way if we, don't, if we like or don't like that outcome. So we might explore humor. Maybe humor is the best way to explore this challenging question or whatever it may be. It may be a direct honesty. It may be, a joke. It, you know, we get to play around with it without sac- a way of navigating our own authenticity while also meeting this relationship and this person where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. And also that honesty, though, with ourselves, because often we lie to ourselves when we're in the grips of addiction, or even if you're not an alcoholic per se, but just drinking too much. And we start to lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel better and perhaps saying to other people, no, I'm not drinking that much. We're hiding how much we're actually drinking. And that's a bit of a slippery slope once that starts. Yes. It's also why you really can't tell someone they're addicted or they have a problematic relationship with someone because they're going to believe their story. And if something comes along that challenges their perception or their story, they're going to push and resist this other perception that might literally collapse their personality or collapse their structure. Because if they confronted the fact that they might have a problematic or a challenging or a relationship with alcohol that's actually detrimental to the various aspects of their health, that would be a very challenging to accept. So they don't. So and it almost... It, doesn't help the situation in that case to tell someone, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And or something, if someone asks me that, or I'm like, the worst thing I can say is yes. Yeah, that's so true. Mm-hmm. The best the best thing I can say is, well, let's get curious. So why do you ask? Is there something happening? So then we just, again, the, my authentic answer, my honest answer may be yes, but it doesn't help the situation. And in fact, it won't help the person, mm-hmm. but to get curious and like almost get excited that this person is willing to ask the question. The fact that someone is willing to ask that question is huge, but it also points to the fact that if someone's willing to ask a question that confronting, that there must be already some internal process that's present that's causing them to question this. Otherwise, they wouldn't be questioning it. So it's already happening, that process of change and self-inquiry. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's when we all become ready to change is when we are, we can have that moment of real honesty with ourselves and to be able to look at ourselves and say, yeah, this isn't healthy for me anymore. This isn't working for me anymore. And right. Yeah. And being on the other side of that relationship, that person that might be listening to this person, whether someone might be listening to this with someone in their life that is struggling to even find clarity on this relationship. As soon as we say, yes, you are, that's going to close it off and close off the potential of exploration. But if we get curious and we actually navigate that with gentleness and asking questions rather than being directive, we might actually support this person to see something within themselves that is absolutely essential, uncomfortable, but absolutely essential for growth. Yeah. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you today, I've been doing your Summerwise course, which has been absolutely awesome. And one of the segments of it that I really loved was the segment on self-acceptance and the chapter in your book, The Radical Self-Acceptance. I've read that over and over and underlined it all. You should see that thing. It's (laughs) 
But I, I absolutely love that and the work that you gave us to do around that within the course. Absolutely awesome. So I wanted to chat with you a bit today about self-acceptance and how that looks for people in recovery, particularly there's a few things I want to cover. One is in relapse or if Mm. we've had a lapse and I've got a specific question Mm. from someone who's read your book about that, how we can use self-acceptance to help us in our journey on recovery. Could you speak to that? Yeah. Well, the process of change, sometimes we think that if we engage in the behavior or the substance that we're trying to move away from, that we've failed. Like, ah, I did it again. I ruined it. I I haven't succeeded. I'm back to where I started. And that self-judgment, that shame and that guilt actually only perpetuates the next cycle of use. So the process of change, you can still quote unquote change even after you've lapsed or relapsed or reached for an addictive uh, behavior or substance, if we practice acceptance, if we interrupt that process of self-judgment and shame and guilt, it won't fuel and catalyze the next thing, the next cycle of it. Because oftentimes the very thing that makes us feel better from the shame and the guilt that we get from judging ourselves is exactly the behavior and substance that we're wishing to move away from. The SOMOIS online program, the first several modules, because there's seven modules, the first four modules are really about personal practices, like really learning how to get into the body in different ways. And it's not until the fifth module, the fourth or fifth module, that we really get into this first context of taking these skills, these practices of stillness, of being able to connect to the body, that we bring it into the first most important relationship that we have, which is the relationship with ourselves. So here's where the practice of stillness is actually synonymous with acceptance, because if we practice stillness, that skill is what we essentially lean on when we're accepting. They're the same thing. Acceptance Mm -hmm. is a label of the mind, but what we're actually doing in the body is becoming still rather than reactive. Mm -hmm. It's when we are reacting that we're not accepting something. We're feeling something subconsciously at first, but once we become consciously aware of our body, we talked about it at the beginning of this podcast, those pings, those impulses, those temptations, those urges. And once we become aware that that's actually happening, It's stillness, which is a somatic experience that is exactly the same as practicing self-acceptance. Like, Mm. oh, there it is. I can be with it. I'm accepting Mm. it. I don't need to react and do this thing that I always do. I don't introduce it at the beginning for this very reason, because it's hard to catch those impulses in everyday life when we're living and we're stressed and we're, we're navigating all these different relationships and contexts. So it's after weeks of practicing being connected to self, weeks of practicing stillness that we say, okay, let's bring this into a context that is quite important. Even before we bring it into relationship with others, which is then even more complex because we're sort of managing another nervous system, let's just stay connected to this and notice what happens in our body when we are judging ourselves, when we are beating ourselves up, when there's shame and there's guilt. And what tends to be the experience for most people is that when they are in that cycle of self-judgment, what do you think the state of the body is like? Mm, Well, tension. Exactly. Mm. There's tension and there's resistance and there's discomfort. And here's what happens when all of a sudden we pause it and say, practice some kind of self. And here's the thing. I'm not going to give a specific script or strategy or tool for self-acceptance because every one of us might have different ways of relating to ourselves that help us to embody that space of self-acceptance. Whatever strategy or tool that we use, whether it's a mantra, whether it's just some positive affirmation, whether it's simply checking into the body and feeling, whatever it is, the evidence that the self-acceptance is working is going to be in the body. And what do you think happens to the body when we invite self-acceptance? It relaxes. It relaxes. And all of a a sudden, the impulse and the need to fix or soothe this discomfort drops away. And all of a sudden, oh, I'm okay. And that I'm okay can be quite liberating because all of a sudden, all of that chatter, all of that rumination just dissolves. It just stops. It's hard though, when you are faced with something that's really got you by the balls, like some big emotional upheaval and you're feeling it so much in your body and you do want it to stop. And I'm sort of touched on this a bit in one of the group calls where my sister passed away during the start of the, the course with you. We weren't close. It wasn't a great relationship. But when she passed, I felt so much churning in my body. It was just the perfect timing with doing your course as well. And I've already spoken about this on the podcast with another therapist, but how I was wanting to eat and also, but my stomach was so tight and I couldn't, it wouldn't go. But I know from this work and from other work, just accepting that these feelings were there in the body. 
And then I couldn't change, like I knew it had to process. Mm -hmm. So even just accepting that rather than fighting it, noticing the sensations that were coming up, my urges, the urge to eat, even though I wasn't hungry, the sensations in my body, which really helped so much in what you'd been teaching us as well, about noticing the sensations, noticing what's going on, but really fine tuning that. So I was able to just sit and accept, okay, that's there. And I was more mindful and I wasn't really shoving carbs into my face. And so after a day or two of that big kind of tightness in the tummy and a lot of journaling, it just sort of passed. Yes. It went, but I didn't fight it anymore where previously I'd be into a bit of a panic because why don't I feel good or what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're describing is a really important process for the listeners to pay attention to because sometimes we engage with these practices, whether it's acceptance or breath work or meditation or yoga, whatever you want to call it, with the intention of getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. And it's important that that's not sneaking in as a hidden intention because then we're just going, we're sort of tricking ourselves because we're still going towards that same pathway of avoidance, numbing, distraction rather than acceptance, which is fundamentally simply saying, feeling this shit, it doesn't feel great. It's just settling into the shit. And the mind may say, okay, well, I'm accepting. Why isn't it going away? And that's the first sign that we're not accepting. Because we're actually fighting the experience of accepting. Uh, We're fighting against the experience, trying to trick it into going away. But Mm. acceptance is really, and maybe I talked about it last time as well, acceptance is asking yourself, am I okay? Would I be okay if this experience, this sensation, this discomfort, this pain, if this was here for the rest of my life? If your answer is anything other than yes, then you're not accepting. That's hard though, Luke, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that requires, this is where that ruthless honesty comes in. But here's the thing. We can also accept that we're not 100% okay with this being here. And even that begins to loosen the constriction of pretending that we're accepting. Because if we're pretending that we're accepting and it's not working, it'll create more tension because there's a a misalignment. Mm -hmm. As soon as we align and as soon as we create that alignment between our radical self-acceptance, the mental sort of perception and the experience of our body, and we simply say, you know what, this sucks. I'm trying to accept it. But right now I'm having a lot of difficulty accepting this. All of a sudden that in and itself relaxes the structure and the tension might begin to dissolve. Mm. And the the way that the body processes is very different than the rate that the mind wishes things happen. The mind just wants instantaneous change right away. Mm. But the problem is that, well, not the problem, the reality is that the body processes, it takes its own damn time. And you sat with that pain for two days. And the magic ingredient isn't that I accepted it for two days. It was that you were paying attention for two days and Mm -hmm. you weren't reacting. And as we drop into that state of stillness and we notice and we invite compassion and kindness, yeah, I might eat this, but there's a, it's not a subconscious reactive triggered eating. It's staying connected and noticing. And all of a sudden, when we invite consciousness, when we invite intention into our behaviors, it takes away the guilt and the shame because oftentimes people feel guilty and shame not because of the behavior itself. It's because they don't have a sense of control over it. Once Mm -hmm. we don't control it and once it controls us, once it's habitual and we're not actually choosing it, that's the first sign that the human organism all of a sudden says, wait a second, this is a problem because there's nothing more valuable to a human than freedom or the perception of freedom. And as soon as that perception of freedom starts folding in on itself and we start being controlled by our environment, by our parents, by our spouse, by our anything, we know what that feels like. We start pushing against it. So in fact, one of the first moments that people start questioning whether or not they're addicted or whether or not they have a problematic relationship with the behavior is when the question of control comes up. If they start feeling that they don't have control, that's when they're like, wait a second, what's going on? but it's paying attention and choosing that all of a sudden allows a specific behavior to have less stress, tension, shame, guilt involved. Mm, I think that's so true. It's also really important to, especially if you're in the early days of recovery or in the early days of changing your habits, but to notice just, okay, I'm having a craving right now. Yes. Mm. That is the magic of stillness. If someone Mm. is listening and they are able to pick up and notice the craving and even better to describe what their body experiences during that craving, they are so far along the process of change and recovery that it's completely worthy of celebration. It may seem like, why would that be worthy of celebration? Because that is literally what is required for us to move away from the temptation and the urge is firstly, the awareness and to be able to track it. What does it feel like? Where do I feel it? Can I stay with it? 
because that's where we get the evidence, the actual experiential evidence that there's another side to this temptation, this urge. Otherwise we experience it and we go reach for something and we never actually give our mind the evidence that this too shall pass. This actually passes. But without that experience, we don't believe it. We're like, nope, this is going to be around forever. I need to fix this pain now. Yeah, that's so true. Oh my God. Those questions, those three questions, again, that's really important for people listening. I would say, write those questions down. So what was it? Was, what am I feeling? Yes. Where am I feeling it? Yes. Am I okay with it being there? Yes. Is that it? Yeah, let's go with that one. I don't. I even forgot. I mean, Dan, you have to remember, you pull this stuff out of me. So I appreciate the questions. <laughs> I know, I've got to be writing as you're talking because that was like, oh God, that was genius. I can't remember exactly what it was. So you might want to rewind and, and write those down, but I think that was roughly it. But as you're saying, describe it. It doesn't yes. have to be those three questions. I'm having a craving. So we're identifying that we're having a craving yes. and we're acknowledging it, yes. we're accepting that it's there. Yeah. And then if we can describe it, okay, what is it? Maybe a craving for me. So that thing with, for me, it was in my mouth. It was like a tingling mm-hmm. sensation yes. in my mouth. That's interesting. What's that like to just sit and be with that rather than react? And you can do that with the, yeah, the craving yes. of alcohol and it might show up, who knows where, in your little toe. I don't know. Yes. But here's the beautiful part of that. If we start focusing on the physical expression of the sensation, we stop gravitating towards the story and giving the the story more attentional fuel. All of a sudden, if we're only paying attention to the ruminating thoughts, all we're thinking about is drinking, 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 and we're fighting ourselves with drinking, whatever it may be. We're either fighting ourselves, focusing on this problem, or we're focusing on getting this behavior fulfilled, whatever it may be. If we're focusing only solely, and I mean totally and solely on there's the tension. For me, it's this strange collapse of the shoulders and this heat in my chest. And if I just stay there and I say, okay, let's stay that. Ooh, I wonder how it changes. Because when we stay with it, we actually notice the subtle way and the nuanced way that it's constantly changing. It might expand, it might pulsate, it might throb, it might shift it a little, move. And if we watch it as if we're watching a movie, like grab the popcorn and check out what happens in the body during temptations and urges, because it's fascinating to see all the different ways. And then to watch as it just somehow, some way just disappears, dissolves and dissipates. And then you sort of check back into yourself as a whole. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. And it's, it's almost surprising that it's, oh, was that it sort of thing? It's unbelievable, isn't it? And it, like you say, it's not that big, bad monster that we think it is. But I think a craving is a beautiful tool and it's a great opportunity to inquire and to learn. So it's not something to be afraid of. And it's certainly not a failure. I think every time we have a craving and we don't give into it, but we are able to experience it, we just create new neural pathways and we get stronger every time. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's really important, if anyone listening wants to experiment with this, is to when we do have even a single moment of restraint or acceptance or stillness or being able to consciously move away from this reactive conditioned response to really celebrate it, say, wow, I I fucking did it, right? Like, wow, I I sat with it. I'm capable of sitting it just this once because all it takes is just this once, just this once every time. Right. Just this once, I'll sit and explore and be present with it. And to notice just how powerful it is. When we, If we do three in a row in that completely conscious, mindful way, it's really amazing how much momentum that can build. Because momentum, I've heard this talked about recently with my teacher on a different podcast. Momentum is such a big part of this, that we do one and then the second one and third one, all of a sudden we've got this groove and flow going. And this momentum really helps us move through bigger challenges. This is why every teacher under the sun will say, consistent practice, consistent practice. Are you practicing? In fact, with most of my clients, one of the first questions I ask is, how's the practice going? Because mm-hmm. if we're just talking about the change, instead of engaging in the consistent practice, because stillness practice is applicable across all change. If we're practicing stillness, we're practicing acceptance. So mm-hmm. I know if there's some perpetual, if there's some habits on repeat, it's not a form of judgment. It's just, you know, how's practice going? Oh, I haven't done it. I'm like, okay, well, and then we might explore that. So what's getting in the way of that? Because this actual experience of acceptance and stillness is what allows it to be accessible in that all-important moment that no other moment matters except that moment of temptation and trigger, because that's the only moment that you can change. And maybe I'm repeating that, but that is absolutely the only moment that change is possible is when we're triggered, when the temptation is there, when the craving is there, when everything in your mind is saying to go this direction, 
and you decide for whether it's faith, whether it's divine intervention, whether it's willpower, whatever you want to call it, for some way, shape, or form, you just don't do anything. And you're like, let's just stay here. And that's a moment of enlightenment, right? Like, wow, that's an awakened moment where you didn't go down this program, the destiny, and you chose a new possibility, new potential. That is a moment of celebration. That is a moment of, it's a miracle, right? Because the mind really decided this was going to happen. And all of a sudden, the mind never thought that this other thing happened. That's a miracle. The mind can't explain how that happened. <laughs> that was so awesome. <laughs> I love that. I can't wait to go back and listen to that again. That was so good. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's right. That's when the change happens. That's why there is no failure if you have cravings. And it doesn't matter how far down the line you are. You know, Luke, just, oh, it was a while ago now, probably eight months ago, but I booked into an Airbnb in Melbourne and I opened the cupboard and there was some booze sitting there and there was that little pang in me, which was like, oh, there was just that moment of temptation. Like there was no way I was going to do it. And, And I just sort of closed the cupboard and thought, don't open that one again. But It was just interesting to sit and be with that and experience it in the body, all those things. And I wasn't ashamed that I felt that at all. It's just like, oh, well, even five and a half years down the track, it can still be there and that's okay. I think these parts of ourselves will be with us forever. And in some way, shape or form, those twinges can be quite helpful for, for me if there is a craving or an urge to reach for any substance for me, whether it's sports, social media, porn, food, sugar, whatever it may be, if I have a temptation to reach for that, for me, it's the first sign that says, huh, I must be stressed about something. I need to take pay attention to something because if my body is or my mind is reacting in this habitual way to avoid, there must be some pain or something that I'm or conflict within myself that I'm actually not paying attention to. So for me, it's like, oh, there it is. Thanks for letting me know, body, that there's something I need to pay attention to. Mm. And, and so it's easier to remind myself, ah, maybe I should give myself something that is soothing for the body. So I might jump in the sun or an ice bath or whatever it may be. Yeah. Do something else. But yeah, just to notice that for me, it was a good reminder that it's still there. Like it, it's still yes. there. And when I was working with someone the other day, we were talking about this, that I think the thing is still always there. How do I, I'm going to describe this, but it's always there. It's like it kind of, it sits there, but we create new neural pathways with each temptation, each craving that we don't give into each time we experience it. So whilst that is still there in the mind, in the body, that kind of that neural pathway to go to the old addictive behavior is always going to be there. Hopefully though we strengthen and create new neural pathways each time we don't give in so that that's a little bit stronger or the groove is a bit deeper, I guess. I think it's a combination of two directions, right? One direction is that when we feel something, And this is actually a really important distinction. If we feel something, two things might be happening, like an impulse to react, a craving or an urge. The first thing as we sit with it and we don't reach for the final step of that sort of ingrained response, which might be the behavior itself, whether it's drinking, whatever it may be, then that nervous system response begins to weaken. As you described, that neural pathway begins to get softer. And currently what might be happening is that when we experience that and we do nothing, we meet that with stillness and acceptance, we develop our capacity to be present with these experiences, essentially conscious discomfort, right? We're consciously embracing this discomfort within our body. And we like doing push-ups or exercising a skill or capacity within ourselves, a faculty within ourselves, we get better at that. What I would be curious about is if we choose a specific behavior, another one, a substitute behavior, whether it's running, meditation, breathwork, something that's healthier, to notice if we're ingraining that to be a habitual response, not to say there's anything wrong with that, but to get curious around the difference between feeling it and choosing something and just feeling it and staying with the feeling. Because if we want new potential and new possibility, that doesn't necessarily mean want to choose what that new potential and new possibility is, because then we're going to, we might get ourselves stuck in another loop. Because remember, any behavior that we're choosing was once a solution for something else, and we never intended it to be a problem. So if years down the track, it's so ingrained that it's automatic, and then we find a new thing that's healthier, and we start doing that one on repeat, all of a sudden we have a situation. I'm not saying running is unhealthy, but all of a sudden we, we might have expressions of running. I'm going to do ultra marathons. And now all of a sudden we're using this healthy coping strategy 
that actually becomes problematic, right? So we all have probably experiences or heard stories of, of runners with injuries or yeah, carry certain injuries because they overdo it. And sometimes even, even that can lead to, to psychological challenges as well. So do you understand what I'm saying here? Yeah. So unless you, so I'm just going to break this down for the people listening in case you didn't get that. This is my understanding of what you're saying anyway, is that unless we learn to kind of sit and be with that, that's showing up for us, mm-hmm. we'll most likely end up replacing the addictive behavior with another behavior, whether or not that's healthy or unhealthy. Yes. Oftentimes it's sugar. Yes. I find with people that are quitting alcohol, it could be running. Look, I would say even for me, mine became work. <laughs> And I noticed I was saying to you at the start when we're on this family holiday and we're having times of no service. And I noticed that, oh, that discomforted me of not being able to work or study or, and I didn't even unpack any of my self-help books, (laughs) but just to stop and just to stop the constant distraction perhaps of work. Can I invite a process that might be helpful Mm. for for this specific thing? Mm -hmm. What I've found is that If we make it programmed and automatic, that's when it becomes a challenge for us. But if we invite spontaneity, creativity, and a check-in with ourselves, it allows the process to be, again, natural. So this is why I also have a big collection of practices that I choose from. So I don't just go to one. I'm not just going to choose one. So it becomes my habitual go-to. The second thing is, okay, here's the impulse. Almost step, if you want to step one, a step one is let's stay with it. Okay. Can I feel it? Can I notice where I experience it in my body? Can I follow it? Can I track it? Am I okay that it's here? Am I trying to avoid it? Like, you know, all the ways of really determining how we're relating to it. Sometimes we're able to sit with it. Great. Celebrate that. Sometimes it it is so strong, right? So you sat with something for two entire days. Some people may not be ready and willing to do that for two days. And sometimes you may say, okay, I've tried, I've attempted to sit with it. And I know that I've done my best to the best of my ability in this moment. I want to give something to my body that will help process this experience. And then we might ask our body, what is it that I need? What do I need right now? And then wait for the answer to emerge. Is it a walk? Is it a massage? Is it a cold shower? Is it a sauna? Is it a hug? Is it talking to a friend? Whatever it may be. And to really engage in that process. And here's the next step. We don't just do it mindlessly. We engage in that practice mindfully and connected and paying attention to notice when we feel that transition because it doesn't happen magically. There's a moment where it goes from feeling not okay to feeling neutral or whatever it may be, and then feeling better, right? So Mm. this is my one word of advice. I try not to give advice. Here's advice. Don't teach your partner how to drive, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm going through that adventure. I have been going through that adventure. And so we happen to be driving somewhere where we're going swimming. And there's tension, there's fear. There's the perception of fear and loss of control and the very real fear of possibly getting in an accident while you're teaching someone to drive a car. And when we arrived at the pool, I'm jumping in and there's still tension. There's still this agitation. There's still this grumpiness, this like, I don't want to be around myself when I'm, when I'm in that mood. And I start swimming. And then the first lap, there's still that tension. By the second lap, I'm like, okay, it's fading. By the third lap, I look at my partner and I walk up to her and I give her a hug and I just, I love you. And it's just so crazy how quickly, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just need the body. So I just needed to give the body some space to process this and stay connected to that. But it's fascinating how quickly just a few movements of the body, just a little bit. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden we shift our physiology and we feel better. Yeah. And also, Luke, not to give yourself a hard time for feeling that kind of tension or even if it's anger or whatever it is. I love in the book, in the chapter of radical self-acceptance, where you say, if your intention is to do something in a certain way, or perhaps to not drink or not engage in an addictive behavior or to be even killed all the time in your emotions, but you don't quite get there this time, you can say to yourself, okay, I didn't get there this time today, or it didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen, but that's okay. So two things in what you just said there. Firstly, because I would tend to give myself a hard time if I felt anger towards Ash or the kids, and I'd be like, oh God, why did I do that? And give myself a bit of a beating inside, but rather than just to go, okay, I might've lost my shit there, or or there was tension there, or for some people it might've been that they didn't quite beat the craving that time, but that's okay. I didn't get where I wanted to be today, perhaps, or in that moment, but that's okay. And there's that self-acceptance again too. 
Yeah. If we really start practicing radical self-acceptance and we combine it with childlike naivety and curiosity, we might even get excited and say, well, let's see how I do next time. Because we know there's going to be another opportunity to face this trigger. And we say, okay, well, yeah. let's see how I do next time. Okay, let's yeah. let's check this out next time. Yeah. And this is also related to the question that you shared with me earlier. This is also the difference between what might be a lapse versus what might become a relapse. For me, the difference fundamentally lapse is if it happens once. A relapse, if we fall back into the pattern, we mindlessly start going into our old way of being and it just takes over. And then we might end up believing and perceiving we're back where we started. So when we practice radical self-acceptance, we can experience a lapse and relate to that with acceptance, with stillness, with compassion, with reflection, with curiosity, and notice it and say, okay, well, let's see how I do with this next time. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. the fuel that would have triggered the mindless collapse into the relapse behavior, it doesn't catch fire. It doesn't gain the momentum that it needs to turn into that quote unquote, I don't like downward spiral. It is just a habitual reaction that we find ourselves in. If we're able to connect, if we're able to stay present, okay, I did it. What does it feel like to have done it? What benefit did I gain from it? Like, let's really get curious about our laps. Did it last? How long did it last? So to get curious and really understand these experiences, because the more information and awareness that we have about ourselves through the experience of a lapse, the better we're able to navigate it. For many people, we actually, we can almost predict, like, I know, like, if we're in a relationship with someone, it's like, I know what's going to happen if I say this thing that I want to say. Like, I know what's going to happen. And then we might still say it. And guess what we get back? We get back exactly the reaction we thought we were going to get because this is how we've programmed our relationship. But then once we stay present with ourselves and we're like, oh, there's the possibility to say that mean thing that I don't want to say. And then we're like, you know what? I'm not going to go there because I've have the awareness. I've done the reflection. I've experienced and explored this lapse, lapse in judgment, lapse in behavior, lapse in whatever. Hmm. And I choose a different path. And then we get to play around and see what happens in this relational container, whether it's the in relationship with ourselves and the substance or in relationship with another person. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. And look, that question comes to me a lot from people. They might say I've done a year or seven months or two months without alcohol. And I slipped up the other night. I always get this question. Does that mean I have to go back to square one? Am I back to day one again? What do you say to that, Luke? I think that if we let the mind guide the process of change and the expectations of where we should be based on the mind's perception of it, we'll always fall short of the mind's expectations. From the perspective of the body, there is no failure. It's just a mental concept that we impose on our experience. When we do have a lapse, Sometimes it's best to explore the context. Like, I wonder why it happened this time. I wonder what was happening that was so stressful that would have contributed to me doing this. What can I learn from this? Because there's always a lesson to garner if we're paying attention to it. So it doesn't have to be a relapse. Well, it does tend to happen. It's okay, let me share this. One of the contexts that we might explore this phenomenon of experiential avoidance, of avoiding pain and discomfort. If anyone has ever done a long meditation sit, or if you're listening, and you try to sit for an hour, right? So I think sitting for an hour is quite a challenge, especially to be done in complete stillness, right? That transformational quality of stillness that we've talked about in the past. When we're able to sit with stillness, the first time you move might be after like a half hour, you finally, okay, I need to move now. And then you move. What you'll find is that temporary relief. Now the impulse to move happens a lot faster and you'll probably move a lot faster right after that. So as soon as we allow ourselves to make that first adjustment or that first avoidance of pain, whether it's through behavior, or whatever it may be, but within this example, it's meditation, it's easier to keep going with that behavior. This also happens when we lapse because as soon as we lapse that first time, then it's like, okay, well, I did it this once, I might as well do it again. So it does take that momentum building again. We talked about momentum at the beginning. We can talk about momentum now. Once we've lapsed, it takes a little more effort, a little more awareness, possibly a little more presence and acceptance to rebuild the momentum again. But once we've built the momentum again, it becomes just as easy as it was. But don't be surprised that if we lapse, expect, uh, maybe we shouldn't expect, but there's going to be the experience where the body now has had that nervous system response rewired for a moment. So it might think that it's going to get it again. So if someone has had a lapse, say, so they've had a slip up or a lapse, we don't want it to go into a relapse. So we don't want it to go into that big addictive pattern cycle yeah. again. I guess it goes back to what I said before, pulling that quote from your book about, yeah, okay, it didn't work out for me this time. 
and having that curiosity. Well, what are the sort of fundamental things you could implement to stop that lapse turning into a full-blown relapse? And I do think a lapse can be a great learning opportunity as well. Absolutely. I agree with that. Firstly, that the lapse is a learning opportunity. Mm. So I guess if we want to help that process of a lapse not turning into a relapse, the first process might be reflection. What was happening in this environment that would have allowed this trigger to reach the level that I did act upon it? Mm. So that might be the first step. The second question might be, which aspects of this were within my control, which aspects were not? Another question might be, where was I being dishonest with myself, right? Sometimes we Mm. we do things and we're like, I'm going to go to this place and do this thing and I know it'll be different this time. And this is what my relationship with porn was like. I said, well, what if I watch it just this once after many months of abstinence? What would happen if I just watched it this once? And I would fool myself and say, well, maybe this time it won't be problematic. And then, you know, with ruthless honesty, you pay attention. You're like, no, no amount of this stuff is good for me. So for me, abstinence with porn was was the only answer. For others, it may not be. So that's reflection might be step one. The second thing I'll say is that consistent stillness practice and not doing stillness when you feel the temptation, but doing a consistent stillness practice at some point in the day, just as it's like brushing the teeth. The reason I say that is, again, that's how we experience stillness and acceptance. The third thing, one of the third thing, this is why earlier in the podcast, I said the specific strategy that you use for self-acceptance is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is that you experience the softening of the body as a result. So sometimes I remember driving in the car and the first time, like the first time this ever happened where I looked in the the rear view mirror and I looked at myself and I just said, I love you. And I meant it. And I just, everything released. And I was crying tears that I never thought I'd cry. Some people do mantras. Again, the the self-gratitude journals. I know a lot of people keep gratitude journals. One of the exercises in SomaWise Online is a Mm self-gratitude journal Mm -hmm. to write about qualities within ourselves that we can acknowledge and celebrate, right? So is this a process of self-acceptance? A self-acceptance looks different for every person in every situation. So I, I don't want to say that there's this magical one, but the two things that I think are applicable across all boards would be the consistent practice of stillness and the curious reflection as to what happened and why did it happen this, this time? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I love the worksheets that you gave us in the Soma Wise course to back all this up. So we've got the readings, we've got the practices through the meditations that you supplied us with and have given us. I really loved at the very start of the program, it was just that stillness meditation. I think it was just being with the breath, just a very basic stillness yeah. meditation, which is there on Insight Timer. So if anyone wanted yeah. to check that out, they would just go onto Insight Timer and follow Luke. I'll put a little link in the show notes for people. If you want to try out that as a stillness practice, it wasn't very long. It was really beautiful. I really loved that. And it really does make you more aware of your own body and what's going on for you. And it's a great first step into this kind of work. Once you're experiencing a little bit of that as well, you're experiencing that stillness, experiencing that going into the body. You'll know more and more what we're talking about. So I actually did a coaching call with someone the other day, we're talking about this kind of stuff. She'd actually bought your book off the back of the podcast and had read it as well. I said, go back and listen to that episode now because we've did some practices within the coaching call. And I said, now go back also and listen to that episode I did with Luke because we talk a lot a lot about this stuff. And I think it's it's great once you've started this sort of work to go back and, yeah. and, and listen. So that insight time and meditation is a really great place to start. Obviously your book is the next great place to go <laughs> and doing your SomaWise course, it's, it's just brilliant. It's absolutely been brilliant and I, I've loved it. So when is your next one coming up? Uh, the next SomaWise online group starts on June 28th, actually, Wednesday, June 28th. It'll start at 7 p.m. New Zealand time. So I think that's 5 p.m. in Sydney and different parts of Australia. It'll be earlier in the day. Yeah, I think it's definitely worthwhile. And especially even if you're already down the track in your recovery as well, I think, oh, it doesn't really matter where you are actually. And I know there was some people in in my group that were just starting the alcohol journey and it's wonderful. So I definitely recommend people checking that out because it's really beneficial. And then you really kind of understand these concepts that we're banging on about right now. I I appreciate you also, you know, it's beautiful because you're right. There's people in different stages and places in the recovery process, but Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right that when you start experiencing this stuff, this connection to the body, you start 
seeing it and reading it with a different understanding. And it's not until you actually feel acceptance in the body, then all of a sudden you start reading about it and doing these practices that it makes sense in a different way, in a more embodied way. I'm so thrilled that your colleague, your friend was having that experience. Yeah, it was absolutely awesome for her. And it's good to have the reminder. So like I do a lot of stillness practice, I do a lot of meditation, but even doing your course, it's still a great reminder and it's just going that level deeper. Again, I think it's always great to keep on learning and learning from different people and experiencing what other people have to offer as well is great and really beneficial on the journey because we just keep learning. I I think as soon as we stop learning, we're not growing anymore. We want to keep learning everything that we can. Although I do have a bit of an addiction with learning. (laughs) 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 But what would you say? Would you agree, Luke, to keep on learning? I think that the curiosity for life, I, I wouldn't substitute it for anything. When I discovered this world, when I was 30 years old and I had this insight, the insight was quite simple. It was in therapy and I had the insight that I actually don't have the control I thought I had. And a lot of the things that my mind assumed were true were completely wrong. And as Mm. soon as I had that confronting experience, it sounds small, but when you experience it in your body, of course, it's a different thing. When I had that confronting experience, I'm like, well, I want to go find truth. Nothing else mattered except this curious exploration of what was actually happening here and what was actually happening here, what was happening in my mind, what was happening in my body. And I just got so supremely curious about it and it hasn't stopped. I don't think it's going to stop. The only thing that I've gotten better at is that I can put that curiosity aside and just enjoy and savor the beautiful moments in life that I was overlooking because I was stuck in my head. Right. So mm. for so for me, it's like, well, the proof is in the relationship with my son, with my wife, with mm. the important people in my life. Mm, absolutely. I've caught up with a group of people that I've been working with for some time in, in Perth and I hadn't met them before and it had always been on Zoom, I guess, in doing our calls and whatnot. And just to be there and, and typically before I would have felt really nervous to be with a group of people that I hadn't met in person before, but even just experience Oh, noticing my body, I'm feeling a bit nervous or, and where does that show up? But just being able to be, once I've got through that and I'm sitting there with these people and I'm in my body and I'm just there in that moment experiencing them. Oh, it's just, it's so beautiful. And before, I mean, I wouldn't have been <laughs> having lunch with people that I'd been coaching before because I wouldn't have been doing it, but to be in a group with people at lunch, I would have been shit faced because I would have been so nervous about it and worried about myself. And then of course made a dick out of myself because I would have been shit faced, <laughs> but you just miss so much when we're not connected to ourselves. And if there's any regret I have, and I don't like to have regrets about the past, but I do, I feel sad that I had all that time, those decades in my life where I was really disconnected from myself. Mm. And I guess all these practices are teaching us to become more and more connected. And it's not just a connection to ourselves, but what's going on around us. We become, I don't know, just more aware and it's just so much richer, isn't it? It's a beautiful description of the process of actually living our life, becoming participants, active participants in our life, rather than sort of mindlessly going through it, where we we just, with a snap of a finger, years have passed. Like, how did I get here? Whereas all of a sudden, when we're paying attention to these micro moments where everything, you, you just feel the full intensity of life. And it's a beautiful intensity once you get used to it. you know, how you had that experience driving with your partner and feeling that tension and getting in the water and having the swim and feeling the body come down again, and then being able to see her through a different light all of a sudden, then you went up and gave her a hug. I mean, what a beautiful process to go through. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that you're, you're bringing that up and that's, if we're paying attention, Every day becomes like a beautiful, rich story, a beautiful, rich experience. It's a new adventure every moment that we're paying attention to ourselves. Every day is a new adventure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can I ask just a couple more questions? Because I'm just so stoked to have you here. So, But I'm, I'm aware of your time as well. But can I just ask a bit about one of the questions that you'd asked us in the SomaWise course in the Radical Self-Acceptance Worksheet was just where can we allow for more self-forgiveness? And I know for people that have been, who've had alcohol problems or any kind of addiction issues, particularly with a substance that makes us behave badly or perhaps in ways that we don't recognize within ourselves. And there's that guilt 
and the shame. Yeah. And there's people that I work with that they just can't let go of some of the things that they've done. And some of them are pretty big things that mm. have happened, that have transpired when they've been drunk. What are some of the things that you would say to someone to practice self-forgiveness, things that they've done? This is one of those contextually dependent answers because every person is experiencing this in a different way. So what I love about CI and any kind of inquiry is just curiosity around understanding what was happening, the reflection process, the exploration process. The more we understand and the more we're actually able to face this experience that we're having trouble with accepting or forgiving, the more we're able to see the finer nuances and subtleties of the experience. If we stay in the cycle of blame and we stay there, we won't be able to forgive if we go in and we sort of blow up the experience, and I don't mean like blow up, explode, I mean expand the experience and start exploring everything that was happening, why it was happening, when we understand the role of alcohol in our life and why it was there, when we understand the role of these relationships, when we understand all these things with more information and awareness, create space for forgiveness. Because forgiveness, I don't think, is something that we can consciously do. I think mm -hmm. it's a consequence, again, of stillness. It all stems from this capacity to simply observe. Once we're able to give the mind the information or awareness it needs to step out of the way, all of a sudden, here comes this experience. For me, I'm going to speak from experience, and I can only speak from my experience. The thing that I had to learn to forgive myself for was the way that my mind was sexualizing and objectifying women after my exposure to pornography. So, so many years of watching porn, all of a sudden this automatic process that I was beating myself up that I couldn't forgive myself for. And it was actually when I had these realizations that when I started watching this accidentally as a form of avoidance, as a form of, of attachment, because I didn't have any at the age of five, right? when this started, I had no intention that 25 years later, 20 years later, this is what it was going to happen. And this is how my mind would operate. It wasn't my intention. It wasn't my fault. This is just the only way that the small child had to cope with the stress that they didn't understand. And again, with that awareness, with that understanding, I was able to say, you know what? I don't have any control over this. And it just freed up. It just stopped the judgment. And it made me realize which aspects I do control, which is, okay, there it is. I can accept that it's there. And I'll just continue trying staying present. And it was this practice of coming back to myself and staying present with this person in front of me. Whether that's applicable to listeners, whether that's applicable to others who are moving away from something or trying to move away from something that they can't forgive themselves for, maybe there's some commonalities, maybe there's not. But what might be the common thread is an understanding and appreciation of the contexts that would have allowed this experience to happen. And the deeper and broader that we can take that exploration, the more that the focus isn't on the single thing that we're judging ourselves for, all of a sudden it's being considered among all of these other variables that played a part in this experience. And we can say, you know what? There's a lot of other things that contributed to this other than me being a dick or me doing something, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to understand. And also, I always like the question, well, would you have done that if you weren't drunk? <laughs> because sometimes yeah. some of the things that obviously hear about through my work that have happened and you're like, oh, if anything, I just feel sorry for that person if they've done something that's made them feel really shameful or it's been yeah. pretty bad. You just think, well, well, would you have done that if you're sober? And it's always like, no way. And so the, yeah. even just taking that into consideration. Yes. And so notice that trick that you've provided. At the end of the day, it's utility and usefulness. We can measure that. And we can measure by paying attention to how does that impact my body? If we ask mm -hmm. the question, whether we take a tip provided by you, by me, some other practitioners, some other books, some other program, we use the ones that are helpful and beneficial for our experiences. We discard the rest and we use the ones that cross our paths for as long as they're useful. And then we may not mm -hmm. need them anymore. Mm -hmm. So as we engage in these practices and refining that way of learning how to forgive ourselves, we can stay connected. Do I feel lighter or do I feel more tense? Am I carrying the same level of stress? Because our body will let us know if it's settling into the experience of forgiveness, because that's what matters. Forgiveness is not a mental concept. The evidence of forgiveness is here. It's in the body. If we feel lighter, if we feel more relaxed, if we can say something, if we can face something about ourselves, oh, wow, I must be forgiving myself because I'm not having the same constrictive reaction. Mm. 
Absolutely true. Amazing. Obviously, with your own addiction, using these sort of processes of feeling into the body and, and experiencing the cravings or the temptation or the pull towards the urge, how long did it take for you to start getting separation between your own addiction and liberation or freedom from it? Yeah. I would say, like, from my experience, I said this earlier on the podcast, you just get the first three. And maybe in the last podcast, I talked about this as well, but I will repeat it. For me personally, it was two weeks of like hard temptations. Like, whoa, that the impulse to view was really strong for two weeks. After that, I felt a significant drop. And it's not that I felt a significant drop. It, was, it wasn't a conscious experience. It was almost just like, I realized that I was living my life and there's less temptation happening less frequently. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, so this thing is happening less. And then after two months, I noticed that it was very sparing. In fact, then I realized that it was working because when I did feel a temptation, it was so new and novel. I'm like, oh, I haven't felt this in a long time. And then it made me reflect, wow, it's been several weeks or months. So again, it was this unique experience of intensity for two weeks, a couple of months of infrequency, and then barely or every so often. So, But every person is different. I'm going to add one more thing. There was a specific moment, and I don't know what it was, where all the other attempts, like I talk about it in my book, there was all these other attempts that I'd quit porn, but there's always a voice in my head that said, bullshit, you'll watch again, bullshit, you'll watch again. And there was one moment where I just knew, like, it was just like, I'm done. It was just this moment of complete clarity and my body just softened. And I knew I'm like, no, that's it. It doesn't mean the temptations went away. They were just as strong. They were there, but I just knew that I was I was just done and I was okay. Let's sit with it. Let's be with it. And let's figure this stuff out. It was that initial moment for some reason that I just had picture perfect clarity that I was just done with it. It's amazing. I think I remember that moment with myself as well with alcohol. How do you feel now that you are liberated from it, now that you're free from that? How does that feel for you day to day? Porn is a unique one, right? Because it impacts the relationship we have with the opposite sex and certainly our intimate partners. So for me, it's created a connection, a depth of connection and communication and authenticity between my wife and I. That is something that can never, ever, ever, ever be found or replaced or substituted with porn. And in fact, that's the the single most thing I know for certain is that the actual mental, physical, and emotional connection and process of intimate lovemaking and sex is just infinitely it's it doesn't even compare they're two separate things to the simply visual stimulation that porn can provide so and that's again that's just my journey i do think and i do hold the possibility that porn can be healing for some right i hold this possibility that for some that are incredibly restrained or have different views or perspectives on sex that may not be helpful or for themselves that the experience of porn might actually open up healing So I do hold that possibility because I don't have judgment of the behavior. I just understand for me, it's a no-fly zone and it didn't add anything. And it was just so important to have this exploration and understand all the different reflections and insights within myself that wouldn't have happened if I continued to allow it to be my crutch for emotional support. Yeah, amazing. And when it's not adding anything to our lives, I think that whatever that is, whatever the addiction is. Yes. Let's go back. Let's circle it back to the first thing we talked about. And that requires ruthless honesty, right? That requires cutthroat honesty honesty to say, you know what, as good as this thing feels, it actually adds nothing to my life experience. And so that's a hard thing to confront sometimes. Mm, absolutely. That's amazing, Luke. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Again, your book, Soma Wise, Getting Out of Your Head and Into Your Body, which is available on Amazon. And it arrives quickly too. Like every time I've ordered, and I've ordered a few now, <laughs> it just bang, turn up there the next day, which is fantastic. Are you going to get it on Audible soon? I'm working on it, juggling all of life's responsibilities and teaching. And now you and I are planning a little retreat here in the coming months. We can, we'll surprise your listeners later with that, but yeah. you know, and then wedding planning, I've got that coming up, the the ceremony itself. So I'm juggling, but it's on the list of things to do. And I really hope to get the audible version up in the, my goal is in 2023 that it'll okay. be up and available. Amazing. That's so pretty exciting. Well, we'll have to have a chat again when that's due to come out. And so also your Soma Wise online course starting, what's, what was the next one? It was 
June. Yeah, June twenty eighth. The next one starts on June twenty eighth. So the words are one thing. the The story in the book is one thing, but to really dive into the experience of connecting to the body and turning something that is just concept and theory based and turning it into something that's wisdom, experiential wisdom. It's amazing. And myself doing the course so far, it's just been an amazing experience and I've just absolutely loved it and learning so much. And it's just deepening my own experience, and my connection with myself. So I'm really grateful to you for that. Thank you know, you, just yet another offering that you're giving the world. It's fantastic. So thank you. And I really recommend that people check that out and I'll put links in the show notes and people want to reach out to you. What's the best way to reach out to you, Luke? They can visit my website, lukesnuski.com. And hopefully that'll be available in the show notes as well. I know it's a Polish last name and hard to spell and pronounce, but yeah, just my full name.com. Beautiful. Awesome, Luke. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you, Danny, for having me. Look forward to seeing you soon. Bye. Bye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.